Hey, this morning, my husband is uh, at Pentecostal Tabernacle, Bishop Green's Church in Cambridge, ministering for him. Um, and as you know, Pastor Tom is at home resting and being strengthened. Actually, tomorrow is Pastor Tom's birthday. So Pastor Tom, we celebrate you. We honor you. Miss Cheryl, we love you guys. And then um, Pastor Mo and Amy are, are out on a much-needed vacation and family time. So guess who that left? Ah, me. And I was just up here a few weeks ago. I was like, that should have lasted me all year long, babe. But it didn't. So here I am again. And uh, man, if, if you know me at all, this is not uh, any place where I would choose to put myself. Um, but I'm just someone that says yes to the Lord. And so here I am. And so he's going to do his thing today. Um, I thought today would be a good time for you to get to know uh, a little bit about me. You know, my husband is the preacher, very much a preacher. Pastor Tom is a teacher, um, and I don't, I don't uh, claim to be either, any of those things. In fact, I'm most comfortable in small settings, and I would much prefer to be in my living room having a conversation with a couple of us, just um, talking and hanging out, maybe drinking some sweet tea, but um, that's, I'm going to pretend that's what we're doing right now. And uh, so what I want to do today is just take you through some of my favorite uh, verses in the Word um, and just kind of uh, take you on a little bit of a journey that I've been on, um, and I believe that it's relevant for every disciple or follower of Jesus. You know, um, I came uh, to give my heart to the Lord as a kid. I was six years old. I was raised in a home um, with parents who... We're both raised in religious homes. Um, my dad is from Michigan and grew up in a Methodist environment. My mom is uh, from a small town in West Texas, and her dad, who I would call Papa, my Papa, was an Assemblies of God pastor um, in Anson, Texas. And um, that was a dry county, and it was very uh, one small, one stoplight town. And um, so I grew up in the summers going to Papa's church. Uh, where um, he, they would play the acoustic guitar and have the tambourine, and Mima would sing Amazing Grace. Um, and so that was my summers. And um, I grew up where um, my dad was very um, intentional, and my mom too, about the disciplines we had in our home. Uh, we were in church every Sunday. My dad placed an emphasis on that. We were involved in our church, engaged in community, and um, we read the word together. Uh, every morning before school, my dad read with his four girls. I'm the oldest of four. And um, we were supposed to be in the word every night. In fact, I was an avid reader love to read, and um, I got really good at, at hearing my dad come down the hallway and hiding the book I was reading under the covers and pulling my Bible out on top of the covers because my dad knew I could read a book in one sitting, and so he was famous for coming in my room and saying, how many chapters have you read in that book? That's how many chapters I want you to read in the Bible, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, like, this is a 20-chapter book, dad. So um, yeah. So, Dad, if you're watching, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> some of it's still stuck anyway, right? Here I am. So um, that's kind of the environment I was raised in. And I remember when I was filled with the Spirit, and I remember uh, when I was reading the Word one night and found what I 
call my life verse, which you've heard me say before, John 6, 38. Jesus said, I came down not to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father who sent me. And uh, I found that verse my junior year, and um, I was so relieved when I found it because I was feeling so much pressure to pick um, what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I was like a 16-year-old kid, so much pressure. And um, I just knew, I read that verse, and I was like, okay, that's good enough for Jesus, that's good enough for me. And my whole mentality and perspective of why I was on earth shifted. Um, I'm here, and I was created to do the will of my Father. And I believe that that is true for every single believer. It doesn't matter who you are. And um, as I share today, what I want to make really clear is I don't believe that there was anything special about me. I am just someone who chose to say yes to Jesus and who chooses to be led by the Spirit in all things um, in what I, and how I spend my time and what I put my hand to and the way I raise my kids and my marriage um, and how I spend my free time. Uh, every single decision along the way from the time I was a teenager to now at 42 years old, I have done my best, not been perfect, but I've done my best to yield to the Holy Spirit. And to say, okay, this is not about what you would have me do. It's not about what I want to do or what I want to pursue. This is about what you would have me do and the way and what you created me to do. And I believe that as believers, we are supposed to be transformed into the image of Christ. I believe that we are supposed to be changing and growing in such a way that we look more and more like Jesus. And I don't believe that that is um, unattainable because I believe that we have the word of God and we have the Holy Spirit. And so I want to take you to Romans 12, 1 through 2. It says, this is Paul speaking. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies dedicating all of yourselves set apart as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to God, which is your rational, logical, intelligent act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually by the renewing of your mind, focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes, so that you may prove for yourself what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect in his plan and purpose for you. Transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually. How many of you know aging is a given, right? You don't need to do anything to age. You are aging, right? The beauty industry would love for us to believe, spas would love for us to believe that there's all kinds of things that we can do and purchase um, and experience that will help us not age, but we're all aging, right? Maturity, though, is a whole separate situation, right? Emotional maturity, spiritual maturity, those things are not automatic. Those things are a choice. And I believe that as you choose to be spiritually mature, evidence of that is transformation to be more like Jesus. And transformation begins when we own our own issues and choose to live the truth. Not a truth, not my truth, but the truth. And we laid out, we had a series a few weeks ago called The Word. If you missed that, you can go back to the app or online, intlfamilychurch.com, and go through that series. But I would encourage you um, to make sure that you know the truth. 
that you are loving the word, learning the word, and living the word. So transformation is not determined by the truth we know, but the truth we live. I heard one minister say, it's only when we conform our lives to the truth of God's word that we will transform the world around us. And see, I believe that that's really key because as a believer and as a child of God, I don't exist for myself. I exist so that Jesus can do what he needs to do through me on this earth so that others may come to know him. Everything I do, I want him to be glorified. Everything I do, I want to lift him up because the word says that when I exalt him and lift him up, all men will be drawn unto him. And that's what I want. I want to see all men drawn unto him. So I want to take you to a couple of my favorite verses, verses that I've kind of wrestled around with a little bit. Um, And... uh, They're in the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't know what the Sermon on the Mount is, it's in Matthew 5 through 7. And I would encourage you to write those chapters down or make note of them and read them this week. Read them in a couple different translations, a couple different versions. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what it looks like to be one of his followers and serve as a member of his kingdom. So these passages of scripture are super relevant to us, okay? He's talking to us. This is his longest message, and in these, in these messages, in, this, in these verses, Jesus taught about subjects such as prayer, justice, care for the needy, handling the religious law, divorce, fasting, judging other people, salvation, and so much more. And these verses are what we call the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer. And in these verses, Jesus made it clear that his followers should live in a noticeably different way than other people because his followers should hold to a much higher standard of conduct. I'm calling us up today, right? The standard of love and selflessness that Jesus himself would embody when he died on the cross for our sins. Listen, we are supposed to be Christ-like. If we've accepted Jesus as our savior, then it's not just about where we're spending eternity, but it's about living as him on this earth. And it's about living in a way that other people watch how we live and watch how we interact and they see Jesus. That's not too high of a standard because he's given us the way to do it and how to do it. He's made it known to us. So Jesus made it clear that his followers should should live in a noticeably different way, a standard of love and a standard of selflessness pretty contrary to the world that we live in today, right? I wouldn't wouldn't say that the primary message of culture right now is selflessness. Would you? No. All right, there's so much in these chapters, and I encourage you to go read through them for yourself and see what the Lord highlights to you. But I want to take you to... um, a couple of verses, and I want to set this up. So I told you I, I was raised in a Christian home, and um, so for me, it was not Saturday morning cartoons. It was Saturday morning TBN, Trinity Broadcast Network. That sounds exciting as it sounds. So that was like Christian cartoons, right? It was Christian television, 
And so um, there's a particular set of verses in, the, in these chapters that I always struggled with because of the way this program that we watched on Sunday morning would portray those verses. And so it's Matthew 7, 13 through 14. It says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad and easy to travel is the path that leads the way to destruction and eternal loss. And there are many who enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow and difficult to travel is the path that leads the way to everlasting life. And there are few who find it. So the way that I always thought of this as a kid is because of what this show did. And so I would watch this show, and it would talk about these verses, and so there would be this cartoon of the wide gate, and the wide gate looked like a circus, okay? It was wide, and there was popcorn, and cotton candy, and ice cream, and a Ferris wheel, and a roller coaster, and lights were flashing, and there was toys, and it was like, yes, duh, I want the wide path. And then there was the narrow path, and it was this dirt path, and it was full of rocks and roots and trees, and it looked hard and difficult. And the, the cartoon character that would go down that path would, like, trip over roots, and his, his clothes would be torn, and his knee would be skinned. And I was like, I don't want the narrow path. Like, what is going on? That's horrible. And I go to church, and I hear how good God is, and you need to choose him, and you need to serve him, and I have these images in my head of the narrow path and the wide path, and I'm like, as a kid, I'm like, no, this may, like, no, I'm gonna, I want the circus, and so as I grew, and as I matured spiritually, and as I read these verses and read commentary around them, what I came to understand is that the imagery that Jesus wanted to give us, remember, there's people's interpretation, and then what the Lord's actually trying to say. That imagery of the wide gate and the wide road was speaking to um, that there was many different ways to what um, people thought life was. And that's based on personal preference, right? There's many different ways I can get to where I need to go. And then the narrow path, there's only one way. That's through Jesus right? And so what I learned is that the reason, and I, I had such a hard time with this. I was like, Lord, why, why doesn't, I had, I so thought the narrow path was just this horrible thing because of what I saw. And, and as I lived it out, the Lord was showing me that the narrow path, it's not about, um, it's difficult because it's hard on our flesh. It's kind of the bottom line where I'm trying to get to. It's difficult because it's hard on my flesh, Choosing to surrender my will, my desires, and my wants to God has taken me on the greatest adventure of my life. Living the path and the plan that he has for me, taking the path and the plans that he's prepared ahead of time, Ephesians 2.10, living the good life that he's prearranged and made ready for me to live, that has been the greatest adventure of my life and continues to be. But that was a choice I had to make to go through the narrow gate, right? It's not done for me. A key principle in being a follower of Christ is surrender. I do not believe that you will become a fully devoted follower of Jesus without surrendering. What does it mean to surrender? For a believer, surrender is completely giving up your own will 
and subjecting your thoughts, your ideas, and your actions to the will and teachings of Jesus. Completely giving up my own will, subjecting my thoughts and ideas and actions to the will and teachings of Jesus. You understand why it's so important to be in the word? You're not going to be able to subject your will and your thoughts to Jesus if you don't know his word. So what makes the narrow gate hard? Three things, I think. The fact that we have to die to self. I just said it. Just as Jesus died for us, we have to die to ourselves, to our own wants, our own desires. We have to surrender it all and say, God, I choose you. I choose your plan. I choose your plan. I choose your path. And we must be prepared to make exceptional sacrifices to follow Jesus. Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see, to be a disciple of Jesus, we cannot have the smallest bit of our own agenda or our own way of living. We must sacrifice every ounce of self to follow him. Does it make a little bit of sense now why the enemy is trying so hard to push culture towards all about self, self-love, my own truth, whatever I feel, that's how I identify, whatever my emotions say, that's all me, 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 self, 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 self-centeredness, self-promotion, everything is about self. But the word is totally contrary to that. In fact, the way Jesus lived was totally contrary to that. And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, and if we are disciples of him, then we're going to have to live completely different from the world. Completely different. And we're going to have to be okay with the fact that we're living completely different. We're going to have to be okay with the fact that things are a little bit uncomfortable and there's a little bit of tension going on. Because I know that I'm not made to be here and be like that. I'm made to be here and be like Jesus. It's countercultural. That's number two. It's why the narrow path is hard. We have to lean into the tension that as followers of Jesus, we are in this world, but not of the world. There should always be a sense about us that we are a little bit out of place. Because we're on mission. We're on mission. We're here intentionally, intentionally to do what the Lord would have us to do. I'm not here to just exist. I'm not here to uh, pursue degrees. I'm not here to build up uh, material wealth. I'm here to do what Jesus would have me to do. And I don't live that out in a way that's condescending. I don't live that out in a way that is like elite, well, you can't be like me, like you're not like me. No, no. The whole point is to be taking people with me. The whole point is for people to come to understand and have the revelation of who Jesus is and how much he loves them. Why else is the narrow gate difficult to choose? Because of just that, it's a choice. No one forces us to choose the narrow gate. There will be things that God asks us to do, and there are things that God has asked me to do that my immediate reaction is, no, thank you, I'm all set. I don't want to. If you're a parent, hey, in my house right now, I have a nine-year-old, four-and-a-half-year-old, and almost three-year-old, I don't want to is the thing I hear the most. Right? Any other parents agree with me? 
I don't want to. But guess what I'm teaching my children? We don't live by what we want. We live by the word. We don't live by our emotions and how we feel. There's a lot of things that I don't want to do, but I still choose to do them because if I don't put these habits and disciplines in place, then I become subject to however I feel. I become subject to my own will and my own desires, and that's not how I want to live because when we live subject to that, we're not glorifying God. I don't know if you've seen this, but, but there are people that I know in my life and in my circle that I see them choosing more and more and more things that please themselves and that they're living more and more and more according to what they want and their, their own feelings and their expectations. And the more they do that, the more isolated they get because they're not willing to be inconvenienced for a relationship. They're not willing to step out of their comfort zone to have a connection with someone. It's only in those things, in, in connecting and in relationship and, and getting to know people. That's why we have dream teams. That's why we have life groups. That's why we're a body, a family together because as we interact and do life together, our selfishness is exposed, right? Like the things, the, the things that bring us comfort and the way we want to live, it's exposed. Listen, you know what some of the greatest challenges we've had on our dream teams? Just holding people accountable to what they sign up to do. But you said you were coming 30 minutes early to serve. You, you said you understood the value of what you're doing. You, you, you comprehend that being a part of this is because of something greater. And then when we go to have the conversation of, hey, like, this has become a pattern. This is not a one-off. You know, I'm all set. I don't think it's for me to be a part of this team. Wait a second. That's not how we do life. That's just such a simple thing. It's a simple thing. It's a simple choice on your part to understand that it's not about me. It's not about the fact that I'd like to hit snooze a few more times. Right? And again, like... I, I say these things not from a place of like, oh, I'm standing up here and you should listen to me. I want you to understand that this is the way I live my life well before I ever stepped on a platform. Whatever I committed to do, I committed to do and I committed to give my all because I wanted to glorify God and I was doing it unto him, not to a man. Everything I do, I'm serving him. Everything I do, I'm serving him. Even if I'm serving my kids, even if I'm serving my spouse, even if I'm here serving, serving you, everything I'm doing, I'm doing it not, not because I want pats on the back from anybody in this room, but because I want to hear at the end of my race, well done, good and faithful servant. My eyes are not on, um, I'm not looking for affirmation from out here because if I do, I'm gonna be like thrown all over the place. My affirmation has to come from the word of God. Amen. It has to come from the truth of his word. It has to come from him. So if I never hear a thank you, I know I'm doing it for him. If someone never values the time I put in, I'm doing it for him. I'm doing it because he asked me to. That has to be my source. If I'm looking for external things to validate me and to affirm me, I will never be who God's called me to be. I have always got to go back to him. I've always got to go back to the word. 
What does surrender look like in your own life, in your personal life, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your career as you, as you try to decide or choose a career and how you spend your time and what you place value on and your finances and your reaction to disappointment and discouragement and, your, and getting hurt? What does it look like? What does surrendering look like? I'm not talking about um, allowing yourself to be... Um, trampled on or abused or any of those things. I'm not, I'm not talking about any of those things. This is a matter of the heart. So I'm talking about, is your heart in the right place in your interactions? Are you doing the things you're doing and saying the things that you're saying because you want to help point that person to Jesus or because you're trying to manipulate them and get something out of them? Right? We don't, we don't give opportunity for dream teams or serving because we need warm bodies to fill places. I truly believe that there is nothing greater than plugging yourself into the body of Christ, the local church, and using your gifts to serve. Not letting someone else always be the one that takes care of everything for you but you choosing to inconvenience yourself to be a little bit uncomfortable and say, you know what? I have been served. Now I am going to serve. That's real spiritual maturity. I think sometimes we read the word and we think that Jesus had some superhuman superhero strength, like Superman or Spider-Man or, you know, like, and that he didn't feel everything that he felt. Because when you understand that Jesus felt every thorn shoved into his head, he felt every stripe on his back, he felt every swing of the hammer. It was a dark day for him. In fact, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt he was separated from the Father for the first time in his life. He did all of that because he loves you. All of it because he loves you. And if I could go around the room and say every name, I would, because if there was no one else and it was only you, Jesus still would have done it. Because he loves you that much. And God still would have asked it of Jesus because he wants to be in relationship with you that much. And when you really have a revelation of that, I don't understand how you can live in any other way but in a posture of surrender. Lord, that's how you want me to use my time? That's what you want me to commit to do? I, of course, like I surrender it to you. I surrender it to you. John 10, 18, Jesus is saying about his life, he said, no one takes it, my life, away from me, but I lay it down voluntarily. I am authorized and have power to lay it down and to give it up, and I am authorized and have power to take it back. This command I have received from my Father. It was God's plan, but it was Jesus' choice. And God has a plan for your life. And he's a good God. And he wants you to trust him. And he wants you to surrender everything to him. But he can't make you choose that. 
Just like it was Jesus' choice to willingly give up his life, it's your choice to willingly give up your life. But here's the thing. The more we surrender, the easier it gets. And living in this posture of surrender becomes the thing that I want more than anything else because what I want most is to live the life that God has for me to live. When we surrender, we're following Jesus' example. Why is that so important? Well, this is what I believe. This is why I believe it's important. Those are the verses in Matthew. So there's some verses in John, John 14 through 17, those chapters. Again, you should write those down and you should read them over the next few weeks, different translations. But John 14 through 17 is called the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. And this is where Jesus and his followers were having the last supper. It is the day before, the night before Jesus is going to the garden of Gethsemane. So these are Jesus' final instructions. They're his last words. They are important, weighty words, and they're meant to comfort and prepare the disciples for what lies ahead. Chapter 17 is called the farewell prayer, and in this chapter, in these verses, Jesus is praying to the Father, and I want to let you in on that prayer. So this is Jesus praying to the Father God. I have given and delivered them, meaning your disciples, your word or your message, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world and they do not belong to the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you will take them out of the world, but that you will keep and protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, justify, consecrate, and separate them for yourself. Make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And so for their sake and on their behalf, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Neither for these alone do I pray. It is not for their sake only that I make this request, but also for all those who will ever come to believe in, trust in, cling to, or rely on me through their word and teaching. That's you and me. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be one in us, here it is, so that the world may believe and be convinced that you have sent me. Can you imagine what this must have been like for Jesus? He has spent three years with these disciples, and he knows he's getting ready to go to the cross. And they're not going to have him in physical form like they have the last three years. So he's praying to God and asking him to unify them, to keep them, not to remove them from the world. It's the same for us. We're his disciples. And he was looking ahead at all that they were going to have to deal with and encounter and endure and face. And he prayed for them and he prayed for us. Everything Jesus did and everything he is asking us to do is so that the world may believe. That's why we're here. Our mandate of love all, serve all is not just a one-year thing. It's 365, 24-7. It's the reason we exist. 
That is our mission and that is our focus. It's why I choose to live in a posture of surrender. It's why I choose to build habits and disciplines into my life that help me transform to be more like Jesus every day because I want the world to know Jesus. I want them to know the Father's love. I want them to know what Jesus has done for them and what he's provided for them by going to the cross. We can say, oh my gosh, this is, this is weighty. This is difficult. This is challenging. Like, I can't do this in and of myself. You're right, you cannot. That's why you have the Holy Spirit. We are to be encouraged knowing that God has given us a helper in the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite verses, it's one that my kids and I confess together almost every day. It's Philippians 2.13. It says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So we personalize it and say, God is working in me, giving me the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is working in me, giving me the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Lord, I want to have the desire to serve you and to know you, and I thank you that you give me the power to do what you've called me to do. I, um, last year, well, maybe 14, 15 months ago, I, I um, gave a message similar to this in the block. We talked about surrender and what it means to surrender. We talked about the narrow gate. We talked about the wide gate. And... Um, when we got to the conclusion of it, I knew I just wanted to have a time of consecration, like a time for them to be able to say, hey, like this resonated with me and I want to take a moment and I want to spend time with God. I want to raise my hands. I want to spend time in attitude of worship and shift my heart on some things. And um, to be honest, I really, I didn't know how that was going to go. And uh, we had probably about 80, 90 um, students in the room, and I would say over 75% of them came down front, raising their hands, saying, hey, I want to I wanna surrender. I want to live a life that glorifies God. Like, I, I want to do this in a way that glorifies Him, and I want to fulfill His purpose. I think that should be really encouraging to know that there are generations behind us that want to live for God. Because there's so much bombarding all of us that's trying to pull us away from him. And I think that we have to know as parents, as mentors, as aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins and people who have influence in their lives that they're looking at us. Expecting us to be an example of surrender. Expecting us to be an example of a follower of Jesus. And I can tell you that there's nothing more challenging for a young person to hear one thing and see another. There is nothing that will cause them to question everything they're being taught more than that. And so I think that there's a lot of ways and areas that we can do better. Because if we live with tension in our home, snapping at one another, there's nothing in that that glorifies God. And listen, 
I understand tension and stress. I got three little kids. My husband and I both work outside the home. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but this is not a, um, a nine to five situation that we're in. This is 24 seven. And so there's times in my home that I know the atmosphere is not one that is pleasing to the Lord. And I know like in my own self, like my flesh, I'm tired or I'm cranky or I'm stressed. And you know what it's taught me? It's taught me repentance. It's taught me to teach my kids what it looks like to ask for forgiveness. It's taught me that my heavenly father loves me no matter what I do. And the things that he's asking of me and the ways that he wants to refine me, it's for my good. And so it's painful at times on my flesh. And the process of surrender is painful. But it's worth it because I want everyone in my realm of influence, when they encounter me, to encounter Jesus Christ. I don't want to be someone who identifies as a Christian but has no fruit. I don't want to be an inaccurate representation or witness of who he is. I want to love the word and learn the word and live the word so that as I'm walking around, people see Jesus. And that doesn't mean that I am perfect but it means that I live in the posture of surrender where my heart is always turned to the Lord and I'm always saying, Lord, I wanna be more like you. More than anything else in this world, I wanna be like you. More than my kids know or, or learn anything else, I want them to meet Jesus through me. And so if there's areas where I'm not there yet, help me so that they can see Jesus in me. I want people to see Jesus in me, and I would hope that anyone who has surrendered their heart to Christ, that that would be the cry of your heart. It's not about quality of life. It's not about um, where we're going to spend eternity. If I can surrender all of those things and just say, Lord, it's just about you and being with you and spending time with you and being who you want me to be, he takes care of everything else. That's where Matthew 6 comes in. Seek him first. And he will add everything else besides that. Everything else besides that. But the thing that I have learned, man, what I have to surrender the most is the expectation of how God's going to do that. I believe that as I surrender and seek him, he adds everything else and he takes care of everything else for me. But in my firstborn tendencies... I would like to control the outcome of that. I'd like to dictate how that happens. But I have to surrender that. Because if I'm trying to do that, I'm not really trusting him. I'm trying to say, hey, I want you to move this piece here, and I want you to do this here, and I want you to, this is how I want you to fulfill this verse in my life. Man, it's so easy to slip into that. And then we hear lyrics like we sing, uh, he's never going to let me down. And we hear that and we sing that and we say, oh, well, that's not true. He's let me down a ton of times. 
but he hasn't really let you down. You just put an expectation on him that he never promised to do that way. He always promises to take care of you. He's always with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. But he didn't say he was going to do it the way you wanted him to do it. Nine times out of ten, he's never done it the way I wanted him to do it. Can I tell you? I met my husband at 19. It was 12 years later that we got married. That's a whole other story. But it taught me his timing is perfect. His ways are best. Doesn't matter what I think. Man, the minute I get into feeling so stressed, like he's not who he says he is and this isn't going to happen and in fear and all those things, man, none of that is God. None of it is God. All of it is the enemy trying to get you over into yourself. He wants us to live there so that we aren't experiencing the fullness of what God has for us, of the fulfillment and the peace and the joy. We got to surrender it all. 